Our holy, holy, holy God is here with us now and has gathered us by the power of the Holy Spirit and is here speaking to us most completely in Jesus Christ who is not dead but is alive and present. And we know about that through the word. So we're actually going to be in our scripture earlier than you're used to. We're going to be in our scripture right now, and that's going to lead us into our confession and our assurance and into the rest of the service. So I do invite you to take the Bible out and look at it, open to page 137 in the New Testament. In the back of your Bibles, this will be the book of Acts. We are going to hear a story together. This is a story, uh, actually, it's happening to the Apostle Paul. We know the book of Acts is about the fact that Jesus is not dead, but is still alive and is still working in the world through the church. You've got these Pentecost ribbons above us celebrating the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is the very presence of the living Jesus Christ alive in us, the church at work in the world. So we're going with Paul as he is actually in what city? This city that you see before you on this slide. Athens, that's right. The Apostle Paul is in his second traveling trip called his second missionary journey where he is proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and uh, he is leaving one city that is hostile toward the gospel and he now is in Athens all by himself. And as he's walking around Athens, he actually is engaging first the Jewish people about this good news, and then eventually he goes into the marketplace, and he is asked by some of the great Greek thinkers who love to just sit around in the marketplace and talk about new ideas and philosophies and religions, and you can tell they had a lot of religions, they had a lot of temples to a lot of gods. So... Two groups in particular engage him. You're going to hear that their descriptions, or at least that they are named in this story. The Epicureans. Do you know anything about Epicureans? Yeah, right. Me neither. I didn't. But uh, Epicureans, basically very, very popular philosophy shaping what they did at that time. The Epicureans believed that God was distant. And their supreme value was on individual happiness and, uh, but God wasn't really a part of things here. So that's the Epicureans. Now the Stoics, you've heard of the Stoics, right? The Stoics were actually a different kind of philosophy, which was God was in everything. There was this reason that permeated all things. That was God. Things were unfolding as they would. And so you just kind of take life as it comes without celebration and without complaint. That's t- Stoicism. So you had the Epicureans, you had the Stoics, and they want to hear more from Paul. So let's jump into the story here. This is Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. And I want you to know that as Paul is preaching, he will eventually invite them to repent. And my question to you will be, what is he calling them to repent of? Repenting means turning away from one thing that's leading you away from God toward God. So repent of what? That's the question I'm going to ask you at the end, all right? Just a warning, so you're paying attention, all right? Let's uh, ask God to lead us as we hear this word. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are alive and with us, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you are still speaking, and you are still bringing new life and a new creation. We pray for that as we are listening that we will hear, and that you will help us to turn toward you in the ways that you are inviting us to do that this morning. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 17, verses 16 through 34, listen to God's word to you. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? By the way, the Areopagus is this place called Mars Hill, and they could see the Parthenon and the Acropolis from there. It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God, and perhaps grope for him and find him, Though indeed he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals, while God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Arguing with the Epicureans, Stoics, God is not far away. God is right here. God is not in the stuff of creation. God is not in shrines or in stone or deity of gold. God has made all things and made all of us to be God's children. There have been times of human ignorance, but now it's time to repent. Repent of what? This is an open question. For, of what are we to repent? Yeah, Renee, what'd you say? Sin, yes. And what is sin? What does sin do to us? Self didn't hear the second part of that selfishness. selfishness self at the center 
Do we worship the things that we have made with our hands? Do we have idols? Not like they did, perhaps, but there are our own kinds of works of our hands that become the center of our world instead of God. Do we sometimes treat God like God is far away and not really present and apart and actually the one in whom we live and move and have our being? We are called to repent this day. Repent of the ways that we have taken other things that we love, even things like our children and our families and our work, and we have put that at the center of our lives instead of God. Repent of the ways that we have treated God like God is a distant landlord instead of the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Let's do that in silent prayer, and then I want to remind you of the good news that Paul came with. So let's just pray our own silent prayer of confession to God. Forgive us, O God, for the way we have built our days and our weeks and our lives around secondary things and not placed you first in our lives. Forgive us, O God, for the ways we have barely paid attention to you and your word in prayer. Turn us now, O God, away from our wandering and our disobedience and turn us back to you that we would truly live in you, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Amen. So the good news, in Jesus Christ, those ways that we have compromised who we are in sin, we've not lived as those made in God's image. A new creation, a new beginning is yours today because Jesus walked out of the grave and has given us new life and a new beginning even now. So in the name of Jesus Christ, the risen one who is here with us now, giving us new life, you are forgiven. Is that good news? Amen. Yeah, I want to talk to you about something that actually I heard was on Sesame Street this last week too. Do you ever watch Sesame Street? No? Well, Carl does up in the balcony. He watches it with his kids. And there was a show on this last week about certain animals, particularly frogs. Do you like frogs? Frogs are unusual. No, I don't like to hold them either. But you know, the interesting thing about frogs, we don't have any boys up here. Yeah, there's a boy. Okay, do you like frogs? Do you like frogs? I like all you like all animals. Well, that's a good answer. So frogs are interesting because not like the rest of the animals, they can live in the water and on the land. They can breathe in the water and they can breathe air on the land. Now, we can't do that, can we? There's other animals that can do it. Have you heard of a salamander? Yeah, they're kind of slimy salamanders. They go in the water. Well, there's a name for that kind of animal. I want to see if you can say it. They're called amphibians. Can you say amphibians? Amphibians. Very good. They're, they're amphibians because they can live in water and they can live on the land. They can live in two worlds. Now, there is a great teacher. Her name is Evelyn. And she lived a while ago, and she said, we, people who are Christians, need to learn to be amphibious. What does that mean? Are we supposed to be frogs? 
No. But we are supposed to live in two worlds. We live in a sense world, the world of taste and touch and smell and sight and hearing that we can see, this world that we can see. And then there's a world we can't see. And that's the world that's called reality, the world where God is, the world that really is why we're here and how we live. We can't see God, though, can we? But that reality is the reality that never changes. Everything else kind of changes. So we need to live in two worlds, this world that we can see and the invisible world we can't see. Person. <laughs> Evelyn Underhill, we're in a series this summer where we are actually learning from other followers of Jesus through the ages. And Evelyn Underhill was a very significant woman who helped not only um, take that verse and lift it up, but to help people know how to actually live that verse. It is a description of us. It's a description of our lives. It's also a calling for us to live our lives in him, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Evelyn Underhill actually was born in England. Uh, She was a brilliant woman. She was a writer. She... um, She actually reminds me a lot of kind of a C.S. Lewis, those of you that have heard of C.S. Lewis, kind of a female version of a C.S. Lewis. Uh, Because she's such a great writer and because she's able to talk about the Christian faith in such clear language, in such compelling language for people both inside the church and outside the church. There's probably nobody that researched and wrote and taught as much on prayer and the devotional life as Evelyn Underhill. And she was amazing for her time because she was an academic, she was a brilliant woman, um, and she did graduate from King's College, but the amazing thing is that she was the first woman to teach theology in the Oxford School. That was a pretty amazing thing. The first woman to teach the Anglican clergy. So she was a great uh, leader, spiritual leader for her day, and what I basically want to do in this time that we have is to live into that verse with Evelyn Underhill leading us. Um, And leading us in the way she grew in her own spiritual journey and leading us through the things that she wrote about what it means to live in Christ. So the first quote I want to put up here is her description of, in her own words, what it means to live and move in him, the one in whom we have our being. We stand in a world completely penetrated by the living God, the abiding source and sum of reality. We are citizens of that world now, and our whole life is or should be an acknowledgement of this. The way she figured out that we move into this reality, um, she did a lot of writing on this. First, her first most important work was called Mysticism in 1911 was uh, a movement that is in three words, and I'm going to have Bill put that up here now. We're going to move our way through this. First, adoration, then adherence, and then cooperation. And she didn't always write about these things and this movement. This kind of, this is the way she grew in her own journey of faith. Actually, with adoration, she uh, was convinced and she wrote in ways that anybody could access it, whether they were Christian or non-Christian alike, about waking up to the enormity of who God is, that all things are made by God, that he is the supreme reality. And one of the things she said, um, she would talk about God as kind of the mighty symphony leader. And uh, this thing, this really, I love this quote. 
So many Christians are like deaf people at a concert. They study the program carefully, they believe every statement made in it, speak respectfully of the quality of the music, but only really hear a phrase now and again. So they have no notion at all of the mighty symphony which fills the universe to which our lives are destined to make their tiny contribution and which is the self-expression of the eternal God. Now, interestingly enough, Evelyn Underhill was baptized in the Church of England. She was raised in the Church of England. She was confirmed in the Church of England. And when did she come alive in her faith? When she was 32 years old. Isn't that interesting? And so she knows this truth personally, that we can be like deaf people at a concert, that we can be reading the program, and we can be agreeing with everything, but we really don't have any notion of this mighty symphony which fills the universe, to which our lives are destined to make their tiny contribution, and to build our lives around that, this one in whom we live and move and have our being. And eventually, when she came alive in her faith, she realized that people had these experiences of this kind of glimpse of this mighty symphony that fills the universe and and the reality behind it. And she called it these sudden partings of the conceptual veil. There are moments for everyone when your whole being, you feel and you know a reality that your intelligence cannot comprehend. But when you decide or when you realize that this is the very center of all things, and you want to be more deliberate and intentional about building your life around that center, that's called adoration. You don't want yourself. You know yourself does not belong at the center. You want the center and the author of this mighty symphony to be at the center of your world and your life. That's adoration. And that's what happened to her later in life. And I think, you know, for many of us, we can grow up in the church, we can grow up around uh, the wonderful bulletin and, you know, the great notions of this mighty symphony that fills the universe, and yet we're just getting snatches of it, just glimpses of it when it breaks through in the beauty of God's creation or in the amazing moments of well-being that there's just no other description for it but God or in some some other kinds of ways, perfection. But when you move into adoration, you are basically saying, no, I want God to be at the center and not myself. So that was her movement. And then moving from adoration into adherence, in other words, a communion. One of her quotes, I'm going to read several here. For a spiritual life is simply a life in which all that we do comes from the center where we are anchored in God, a life soaked through and through by a sense of his reality and claim and self-given to the great movement of his will. That is a great phrase, isn't it? A life soaked through and through by a sense of his reality and claim and a self-given over. She goes on and she says in this next quote, What is asked of us is not necessarily a great deal of time devoted to what we regard as spiritual things, but the constant offering of our wills to God so that the practical duties which fill most of our days can become part of his order and be given spiritual worth. You know, the people who are 
those that have devoted their lives to the adoration of God at the center and have lived out of that communion are not always going to church and doing spiritual things. They are finding God and experiencing God and worshiping God in, in all of their ordinary duties, right? Washing the dishes, doing their work, taking care of their children, driving in the car. Everything becomes a place where God is present and where they're becoming aware of God's presence. You know, Evelyn Underhill was known as um, the great spiritual director of her generation. As one, I myself am being trained in spiritual direction. Spiritual direction is where you're not a director. You're trying to help people pay attention to the spirit present in your life all the time. In all the stuff of your life, God is getting your attention. And so as a spiritual director, she would sit with people, I'm sure, one-on-one, and they would talk about what was going on in their everyday lives and pay attention to where God was in that, how God was getting their attention in that and meeting them in that. Because God is not far from any one of us and not far in any single activity of our days. So how is God speaking to us? And how are we living out of that center with a God-soaked life? How are we living in harmony, in sync with that center, with that great symphony, which we are destined to play our part? How are we harmonizing? That's adherence. One more quote on adherence. She writes this, Getting our tangled, half-real, psychic lives so tightly coiled about ourselves and our own interests, including our spiritual interests, into harmony with the great movement of reality, capital R. So adoration and adherence, which was the way she was engaged in ministry, but moving toward cooperation. It's not just about me and God. And by the way, Evelyn Underhill probably is the person who coined the word spirituality that has become so popular since that time because she wrote about the spiritual life. But anyway, it's not just about God and me and living in adoration and living with God and living in communion with God. It also has a horizontal dimension to it. That God is going to move us out, cooperating with the presence and the love of God at work, the new creation that Jesus is bringing and working in this world right now, not just when we die. So let me read one of these quotes as far as cooperation as she talks about the Lord's Prayer. To say day by day, thy kingdom come. If these tremendous words really stand for a conviction and desire, it does not mean, I quite hope that someday the kingdom of God will be established and peace and good will prevail. But at present, I don't see how it's to be managed or what I can do about it. It's not that. On the contrary, it means, or should mean, she writes, here I am, send me. Active, costly collaboration with the spirit in whom we believe isn't that what we are learning here at trinity that god is sending us out it's not just about the benefits of god's love for me and receiving them it is about this love of god for the world and we are called not only to receive that love to be the ones who are embodying that love in the world and for the world. It's interesting because Evelyn Underhill also had a spiritual director. Her spiritual director was a very famous theologian in Europe. He was called Friedrich von Hugel. She met with him for four years, 
And Baron von Hugel noticed in Evelyn Underhill's um, spirituality that it was more about her vertical relationship and it wasn't about the horizontal relationship. She hadn't gotten to this place of cooperation in her writings and in her teaching yet. And you know what his antidote was for her or his uh, guidance was for her? You need to be involved with the poor. And that's exactly what she did. And as she moved out into this horizontal dimension of God's love at work in the world and noticed the brokenness in the world because you notice by her dates that she lived through what war? What war? World War I. She's moving into World War II when she dies. But she saw the horrors of World War I. She came from wealth. She was from a yacht, yachting family. She helped with the Navy and volunteered during World War I. And then as she grew in her own kind of social consciousness of cooperating with the kingdom of God in the world, she became more aware of not really agreeing with the kingdoms of this world. She actually became a Christian pacifist. You can imagine how popular that was in World War II in England. She became very unpopular. But she was moving into this third dimension of cooperating with God's love on the ground and this social consciousness. She writes this, A real man or woman of prayer, then, should be a live wire, a link between God's grace and the world that needs it. And as we grow in this one in whom we live and move and have our being, in adoration, in adherence, in communion, we will grow in cooperation. And it will move us towards sacrifice. That's the word you will find a lot, not only in her writings, but in the description of Jesus Christ. The cruciform way of Jesus is a way of sacrifice. Sacrificial love for God's world. Embodying this new creation. So adoration, adherence, cooperation, this means that from first to last, the emphasis is to be on God and not on ourselves. So as you hear her writings, as you hear her journey, as you hear her invitation, where are you? That's the real invitation of spiritual direction. It's not to focus on Evelyn Underhill. But how is the Spirit of God at work in the life of Evelyn Underhill getting our attention? And where are we in our journey? Perhaps we are in that stage of adoration where God's getting our attention, snippets and pieces and breakthroughs, but not really becoming the center out of which we live our lives, where we intentionally are reminding ourselves that God is that fountain of life, the sum of all perfection, reality with the big R, in whom we live and move and have our being. Or maybe it's sporadic. We don't really live out of this communion where all of our days and every part of our days is lived in alignment with who God is. Maybe that's the place of growth for you. Or maybe you're doing pretty well in your vertical relationship with God and your communion with God, but you really haven't let God move you out, cooperating with the work of God, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven right now in loving and living the way that Jesus loved and lived and is loving and living now through the church. And it's become too self-protective 
instead of self-giving and sacrificial. So where is it? Where is it where the Spirit of the Lord is moving in your life? Last quote from Evelyn Underhill on prayer. Prayer means turning to reality. Prayer is really our whole life toward God. It is the humble correspondence of the human spirit with the sum of all perfection, the fountain of life in whom we live and move and have our being. It is a description and it also is a calling, an intentional calling. In him we live and move and have our being, adoration, adherence, cooperation.